Ja. Uh. <laughs> It's always bad, and I always love that part. <laughs> Welcome to Yell Parks Pod, the number one podcast for yelling about parks. I am Ola, E-M or they, them pronouns. I'm Ellery, I use they, them pronouns. I'm Hawk, I use she, her pronouns, and today I'm your resident Canadian. And I am Nick, they, them, please. Uh, so this episode, we're covering Jasper National Park. It is the largest park in the Canadian Rocky Mountain Range, and it's located near the border of Alberta and British Columbia in Western Canada. It uh, is well known for its Columbia Ice Field and is part of UNESCO's Canadian Rocky Mountain Park World Heritage Site. It has a variety of terrain from mountains and lakes to alpine meadows and has more than 615 miles or 990 kilometers of hiking trails. It is a preserve for many endangered animals and it was uh, declared as a national park in 1930 and as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1984. The area was the home of many indigenous peoples, including the Nakoda, Cree, Sequemic, Metis, and Daneza. One, one note, it's pronounced Metis. Metis. Got it. And these people were removed from the park by force when it was established as a national park. In uh, the modern day, there's the town of Jasper, which currently lies inside of the park, and they have partnerships with the First Nations groups of the area. And I believe, Hawk, you have a story to share about uh, your personal experience with this park. I do. Um, okay. So my grandparents actually lived in Jasper for about seven years, I think, in the late 80s. And, um, my grandma was really happy there. It was like a nice, it's like, it's, it's such a beautiful environment. And, um, my grandpa was semi-retired, so she got to spend more time with him, which was, was great. They had been together since their twenties. And this is the part that gets a little sad. <laughs> so my grandpa died in the early aughts, which was very hard on my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And several years later, um, my mom asked my grandma what, if she could do anything in the world, what would she want to do? Um, and my grandma's first choice was to go cross-country skiing again with my grandpa, which was obviously not an option anymore. Right. But her second choice was to go back to Jasper because she had really just loved being there. And that one we could do. So we took her on a road trip through the Rocky Mountains from Calgary, which is a little south through the mountains into the park, and then we stayed in Jasper, the city, for a little while. And it was the happiest I had seen her since he died. That's really sweet, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's really lovely. I'm glad that she got to go back. That sounds really nice. It was really wonderful, and it was nice to see her so happy and to also get to experience something that had been really important for her. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's a big part of, like, why I love parks so much is because a lot of the times it's always, like, family events. Yeah. That, like, you go out and you, it's not just me kind of off on my own visiting the park, but it's, like, you go there with your family and then, you know, you get to build all of these really cool and, like, really nice memories with them. Yeah, it was just wonderful and Parts of it were a little scary, like, uh, it's probably, it's been several, many years since we went, but, so hopefully the roads are a little safer, but some parts of it would be scary, like, you'd be driving along what was essentially a cliff <laughs> with no railing, and then the wind would come and yeah. the car would move. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been to Jasper, but I've had similar experiences at other parks that I've visited. Yeah, it was pretty mm -hmm. freaky sometimes, um... Even like the the car rental that place that we went to refused to um, rent one of the smaller ones to us that they had because oh they gosh. said it wasn't safe enough to go on the mountains. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, but it was just really fun. We saw a lot of wildlife. We saw a lot of um, yeah. beautiful lakes. And, and it uh-huh. was just wonderful to share that experience with my grandma and my cousins and aunt. That sounds really nice. Speaking of scary, we have a bit, a bit of a Halloween theme for this episode. I know. Um, so our first topic uh, that I think Ellery, you're going to be telling us about uh, Jasper being a dark sky park. Yeah, I'm very excited because I've. <laughs> it was really fun to research this because I've wanted to go to dark sky parks a lot i've never actually been to one yet it is like kind of on my bucket list but that was like one of the first things that i came across when we started looking into jasper was that it is a dark sky park and we'll we'll get into a little bit more of the details of why jasper is so cool for this But I do also want to start a little bit more broadly. So the first question is just, what is a dark sky park? And the Royal Royal Astronomical Society of Canada um, defines a dark sky park, or sorry, a, a dark sky preserve as an area with no visible artificial lighting and that has active measures to educate and promote the reduction of light pollution to the public and nearby municipalities. A light from the areas outside the preserve is roughly the same as what you would see from the natural sky. So just natural lighting in that area. They have three different designations. So dark sky preserves, nocturnal preserves, and urban dark sky parks. The big difference between a dark sky preserve and a nocturnal preserve is the accessibility to the public. Okay. So dark sky preserves like Jasper are very accessible to the public, while nocturnal preserves are a lot less accessible. So it's not as easy to like go camping um, or, you know, bring your telescope and do sky watching and things like that. Because those nocturnal preserves are focused more on protecting wildlife and the environment from, you know, human interference um, and really making that a a safe place for the wildlife. Um, And then, of course, urban star parks are, it's harder to make them as dark as dark sky preserves um, because they are in urban areas but they still do a lot of work to uh, reduce artificial lighting um, and things of that nature, which is really cool. That is really cool. Yeah, and it, which is, like, I would love to see more of that. And the Astronomical Society, I was looking into this while I was doing research, and the Royal Astronomical Society obviously is Canadian, But they have a lot of really good resources that I think anyone really can use, including information on, like, how to petition your local government and uh, different initiatives that you can take to help reduce light pollution in your area. Um, So it's a really great resource, even if you're not Canadian. Yes, and it's not just if you're in, like, the wilderness somewhere. Right. It's even if you're in like a more urban environment, they have recommendations. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you live in the city, you there's still things that you can do. And I think that that's something that not a lot of people know about. You always think of like, oh, well, I have to go out to some national park that's kind of in the middle of nowhere. But even for people who are living in the suburbs or living in big cities, like there's still things that you can do, um, which is a lot of really good. It does a lot of good um, for the environment, for your own personal well-being. Yeah, I know. I know living out here on the East Coast in the big city, it's like notoriously we don't really have um, stars here. <laughs> but um, it it's cool to to see like 
that they even have that urban designation is really interesting and mm -hmm. I'd love to to figure out ways to make the night sky more accessible in places like this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll say I grew up on Long Island, which is super close to New York City. So, you know, we have like a few stars that like you could see from your backyard. But like, I will say I did not even realize like the entire immensity of like what I was missing out on until I went to school like in a very rural area like in college like I was already 18 before I really realized like oh <laughs> that's what the sky actually looks like um <laughs> and it like very much became one of my favorite activities to you know yeah. just on waste parties or like there was an observatory on my college campus. Like, just go look at the stars. Like, they are mm -hmm. beautiful. It's wild, like, missing out on that for almost 20 years of my life and just not knowing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so what makes Jasper National Park specifically very important is that it is now the second largest dark sky preserve in the world. Oh, wow. um, when it was originally founded, it was the largest. Um, although Wood Buffalo National Park, also in Canada, has now taken that uh, designation as the largest dark sky preserve. And it, researching this, it, Canada seems to have like far and away some of the most strict rules around light pollution um, and the most strict criteria for getting that dark sky designation, which is really, really cool to see. So even though if you're looking at lists of, you know, dark sky areas, dark sky parks, you'll see a lot of locations in the United States, but... Really, it feels like Canada is kind of setting the standard for, you know, what makes a dark sky area. I didn't know that about my own country. That's very cool. Yeah. So why are dark sky parks important? There's a lot of different things that having a dark sky affects. So the most obvious one, of course, is science and astronomy, because the easier it is to see the night sky, the more effective, you know, observatories and telescopes here on Earth are going to be. It makes it easier to do observations and things like that. It also, of course, is very important for wildlife. And I know Nick is going to talk about that some, so I'm not going to touch on it too much. But kind of generally, when you get a lot of light pollution, it disrupts feeding, it disrupts mating, uh, migration, it can cause animals to become disoriented, and just kind of generally makes things more dangerous at nighttime because they will confuse the artificial lighting for the moon or they might not recognize that it is night. And so that can be very difficult for animals. Something I also didn't realize before this is that it really messes with plant growth. Oh. Which can have this huge knock-on effect for the rest of the ecosystem when things like that happen and plant growth is affected. So for that, it's actually really important for plants to have that dormancy period and to not, you know, constantly be trying to grow. That's so cool. So do plants in cities have, um, like, different behavior or growth patterns than plants that are not in cities? That, I don't know. I would believe that, honestly. Wow. But, um, yeah, so from the research that I was doing, um, and I'll, we'll put a link to this, but through the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, I found 
some educational resources that they offer that are free and easily accessible to the public. So continuous lighting disrupts plant circadian rhythms. So just like people and animals have circadian rhythms, um, plants also have that. And then it can uh, negatively impact the photosynthesis cycle, which is wild and also terrible. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Because that, I mean, that's literally like how plants get energy and live. So yeah, long story short, um, it's important for basically everything that is alive to have dark skies um, Mm -hmm. and to be able to get periods of rest. Um, And then the... And so in, like, the Western world, those are the two topics that get talked about a lot. We talk about science and we talk about wildlife. Um, Something that does not get touched on, doesn't get touched on as much, is that having clear dark skies is really significant for the indigenous community and I've gone kind of back and forth on how to um, cover this topic but I think that it it kind of in the end I settled on it's important for this information really to come from a member of the indigenous community so I am going to include a link to an interview um, that was very brief, but is a good entryway into learning about some of this information from a member of uh, the Indigenous community. CBC Radio, which is a... Uh, CBC, it's like um, government funded. It's the sort of national... Um, it's like kind of equivalent to like the BBC or something. Yeah. So like in the US, like the public broadcasting service, PBS. Probably, yeah. So CBC has an interview with uh, Wilfred Buck of the Opaskawak Cree Nation. Um, They have an interview with him where he talks about some of the specifically Cree mythology. Um, But, you know, very broadly, it's something that's very important to First Nation groups in Canada. Um, Similarly, in the United States, it's very important to uh, Native Americans. And so it's always something that I think we need to be mindful of, is that it's not just science and wildlife that it impacts, but it also affects the culture and religious practices of the indigenous communities. And people, right. Mm -hmm. And so... What I would say is that you really should go watch this interview. Wilfred Buck is phenomenal. I was watching a couple of um, different CBC videos with him. And he is a really engaging uh, creator and educator. And so I would encourage everyone listening to this to go check those out. I'm definitely going to go after we finish recording this. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I wanted to talk about, because I know I've been going on for a long time, um, is that Jasper also has an annual Dark Sky Festival, which unfortunately has already happened by the time you are listening to this. But it is an annual event. So especially for those of you in Canada near Jasper National Park um, or who are able to get there next year, it happens every year in October um, for the festival. They partner with members of the scientific community, so astrophysicists, historians. Um, they also partner with artists and uh, indigenous knowledge keepers to lead different events and talks throughout the festival. It's really cool. They do a lot of tours and hikes and then like pretty much every night or there's a significant number of events where they will invite members of the indigenous community to give talks and really help educate people on 
why the dark sky is so significant to their culture. It seems like a really phenomenal event and I wish that I was closer. I would love to go at some point. That does sound really wonderful. Yeah, I mean, that is the dark sky in Jasper National Park. Space is freaking cool. (laughs) Is the end of the story, really. (laughs) That may become uh, your catchphrase on this (laughs) podcast. Because you did talk quite a bit about space in the last one as well. I did. (laughs) I, I come in on the first episode and say that I love geysers. And then immediately afterwards, only talk about space. (laughs) So to say more on the wildlife and especially nocturnal wildlife in uh, Jasper. Nick, I believe you did some research and are going to talk to us about birds and bats. Yes, I did some research on specifically two species of endangered bats that reside in Jasper National Park. And I also did research on the common nighthawk, which is a threatened species. So these creatures, they're listed as endangered and threatened according to the Species at Risk Act, which is abbreviated to SARA. What that is, is it's a Canadian act that was passed back in 2002, and it lists actionable steps to protect at-risk species. And in this act, it classifies at-risk species into five different categories, um, which are extinct, extirpated, endangered, threatened, and special concern. So what extinct is, is what it sounds like, um, like, you know, the dinosaurs, um, like gone forever. Um, You can't bring them back. Dodos. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Um, extirpated means that they're either locally, regionally, or nationally extinct, but they exist elsewhere in the world. Similarly, for an example, we talked in Yellowstone, uh, wolves were extirpated for a time before they were reintroduced. They were gone from the area. And it's funny that you use the wolf example because they came from Jasper, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a partnership between uh, Jasper and Yellowstone to get that set up. Yeah, because their um, environments are pretty similar, right? Because they're both Rocky Mountain parks. Mm-hmm. Jasper's further north, just kind of on different ends. Yeah, yeah. Looking at like pictures of Jasper to get ready for this episode, and having been to Yellowstone, I could see how they were similar. They seemed like um, sister parks almost in a way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And and one thing that didn't make it into the episode on Yellowstone about the wolves um, was that wolves have actually like a really incredible sense of direction. Mm-hmm. So when they brought them from Jasper, they were really concerned that they were just going to go back to Jasper. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so uh, they had to come up with this really complicated system for uh, keeping them in like very large enclosures. Mm-hmm. And feeding them until they got used to being in Yellowstone. And then when they got used to being in Yellowstone and they weren't scared that they were just going to leave and go back to Jasper, they then let them out of those enclosures. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. I love that. I'm glad that they stayed in Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Well, they've had such a huge impact. And I'm also glad that I learned that. Yeah. yeah, that's so fun. It's like homing pigeons except wolves. <laughs> yeah, well, so many different animals have such an incredible sense of direction. Mm-hmm. It makes me jealous because I have a terrible sense of direction. <laughs> oh, I have zero. <laughs> but yeah, in addition to extirpated, uh, endangered means that it is facing extirpation or extinction if nothing is done to reverse the threats. Threatened means that it the species is likely to be in danger if actions are not taken to reduce the biological threats or human impact on a species. And then special concern species are sensitive to human activities or natural events, but they're not necessarily endangered or threatened. So the critters that I'm going to talk about today, um, we are going to look at two 
bat species, and I'm going to talk about them together because they're so closely related. But the two species are the northern myotis bats and the little brown myotis bats. Both species are endangered. And looking into this, I... This is a quick aside. I learned some cool things about bats that I'm going to share with you. Um, Please, please tell us about bats. But yeah, so before we get started, um, did you know that bats make over make up over one-fifth of all living mammal species? That's incredible. They're found on every continent except for Antarctica. And back in the 1990s, a fossil was found in Belgium that shows that bats have been around for 33 million years. Whoa. I... Wow. In addition to loving space, I love bats specifically. Bats are, are great. Yeah, I remember like when I was in like elementary school, that was like the time when a lot of those um, kids books about bats were coming out. So like Stella Luna, mm-hmm. um, I specifically remember. Yeah, shout out to Stella Luna. <laughs> Stella Luna is fantastic. Oh, it's so good. But I spent, like, I think all of elementary school reading books about bats. It was wonderful. Their little faces are so cute. Yeah, that's an adorable little kid fascination. Um, But yeah, I just thought that was super cool. I personally had no idea, one, that there were so many bats around. Yeah. Um, Would never have guessed that. No, that's so many bats. Mm-hmm. So many bats. And had no idea that they've, you know, been around on Earth for, once again, 33 million years. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. A long time. I feel like I don't even have, like, a a scale for what that means. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so the... The bats that I am going to talk about, so Myotis is a genus of bats, and the name specifically translates to mouse-eared. So both the northern Myotis and little brown Myotis species are small brown bats uh, with curved ears. The northern Myotis has slightly longer ears, a longer tail, and larger wings, which is how you can tell the difference between the species. So these two species are two of eight types of bats that can be found in Jasper. Um, And while many species of bats eat fruit, nectar, other animals, they're omnivores, um, these two specifically only eat insects. And so these critters are at risk mostly because of this disease called white nose syndrome. Um, So what is white nose syndrome? White nose syndrome is caused by a fungus that grows on the nose, wings, and ears of bats, basically anywhere where skin is accessible. Um, And what this fungus does, it causes bats to wake up during hibernation, which in turn causes them to burn up their fat reserves that they need to survive the winter. Um, It is incredibly deadly and has devastated bat populations in eastern North America. And while it hasn't hit Alberta yet, scientists are keeping an eye out and taking precautions to prevent the spread to Jasper's bat populations. Which, white-nose syndrome is... Yeah, it is currently devastating. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen... I've seen some news i think it was in minnesota i'll see if i can find the article i was reading but yeah i've i've started to see stuff like in the us about this and it's it makes me one nervous um two sad and three uh wanting to do something mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um one of the resources that i found as i was doing this research is a website called uh, syndrome.org, which is a website that is based all on what this disease is, where it is in the world, 
um, actions and steps that, you know, you and me people can take. Um, A lot of those actions include providing habitats and, like, nesting places and, like, bat boxes for bats to live in and, you know, keep any reports of any bats you have and, like, providing a place for them to be safe. (laughs) You know, I always see birdhouses, like, in the neighborhood. I think more people need to start building bat boxes. For the bats. I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so these bat populations, specifically the northern myotis bats and the little brown myotis bats, these are particularly in danger because there's a smaller population of them within Jasper currently. And so what Jasper is doing in order to fight against this white nose syndrome. They have a lot of, they currently monitor the bat populations through stationary ultrasonic bat detectors, microphones, and they do guano lab analysis. Um, Guano is bat poop for anyone who doesn't know. (laughs) Um, And so they take all this data and they contribute it to the North American Bat Monitoring Program, which is an organization that monitors, manages, and supports bat populations in North America. And so on top of this, Jasper scientists also identify the hibernation and roosting sites for bat populations, ensuring that they are safe for the bats. Um, So for example... In Jasper, they were able to identify a specific bat roosting site that um, had an unstable entrance. It was beginning to crumble, and because they are keeping an eye out for all this, they were able to move in, stabilize it, and allow the bats to continue using this specific cave. That's really good. Um, And then whenever park staff enter caves, and it is illegal to enter any cave in Jasper without explicit written permission from the park superintendent. (laughs) Wow. So if you go to Jasper, do not go in caves. That's super important. (laughs) Um, And so if the staff do enter caves, they have a strict decontamination protocol in order to prevent spreading the fungus that causes white nose syndrome. That's good they have so many safety measures in place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, cannot cannot stress how bad this disease actually is. I was just thinking about the um, the last episode when you guys did Katmai, mm-hmm. and specifically about Fat Bear Week, and everyone's paying attention to how much salmon that these bears are consuming so that they, you know, do well enough over hibernation in the winter. I hadn't considered about other animals that would be doing that, and I didn't even know bats hibernated. Yeah. So that's very cool. But especially from, like, seeing the amount of work that the bears in particular had to put into um, getting ready for hibernation, to ha- like, to have that be interrupted mm-hmm. by waking up with the white-nose fungus, mm-hmm. that, that seems really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a reason that hibernation exists that so many species do it because it's essential to their survival um and so with this white nose syndrome waking them up they you know bats they'll wake up they'll fly around they obviously that burns whatever reserves they have and then they don't make it which is unfortunate it's bad um Mm -hmm. looking to see what you can do Uh, to help combat uh, white-nose syndrome in your area. And then continuing on with our threatened species, I also wanted to talk about the common nighthawk. So originally when I was thinking about like, ooh, what am I going to research for uh, the Jasper episode, I wanted to do nocturnal animals, which is why we're doing bats, because... You know, it's October, it's spooky, it's, this is our Halloween episode, technically. (laughs) So, and for anyone who knows me, I am a huge Halloween person. Absolutely massive. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah, I, quick aside, throw a Halloween dinner party every year. Um, I have my menu. I have, you know, I'm big into it. Let's just say that. That that sounds like so much fun. Yeah. It really is. I aspire to be the person who throws a Halloween dinner party every year. Yeah. Yeah, I do all themed food. It's very cute. Um, But... So as I was looking um, for these nocturnal species, I came across the common nighthawk. So quick aside, the name is a bit of a misnomer because they are actually crepuscular, um, meaning that they're most active at dawn and dusk rather than being nocturnal. And so... Oh, so like um, cats are crepuscular as well, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I came across... This critter looking specifically for nocturnal animals um, and stumbled upon these guys and wanted to do them, honestly, mostly because they're really cute. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They look a little, like when they open their mouths, they look a little uh, like something, like a little eerie, like a little off. Oh Um, yeah, they're spooky. (laughs) They're kind of muppety. Yeah, they're they're very muppety. (laughs) They're in the they're in the Muppet line of birds. I just opened the the link. There, this is the world's goofiest bird. <laughs> like they look fairly normal until they open their mouths, and then you're like, "What is that? <laughs> why Why are you like this?" Exactly. So um, they're spooky cute. Okay, they're spooky. Yeah, spooky. Cute. I love That's them. a good way to describe it. Yeah, so I wanted to do these guys. Um, also, they're not hawks. Um, the name Total Wreck. Don't know who named them. Someone um, really just made up their homework assignment when they decided to name these, huh? Yeah, yeah they were like, you know, these birds look uh, weird. Um, they must be a nighttime animal. Also, I don't know, maybe they're a hawk. Who's to say? <laughs> Put those 18th century white men just running around naming animals on black. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a tangent on that, though, is um, there's this really great movement that's been happening recently um, that hopefully, I mean, I think probably the common nighthawk is not the top priority because um, sure, it's going to be more focused on renaming birds um, that are named after, you know, people who committed like genocides and yeah, that extremely seems like terrible a, things. Seems like a good thing to start doing yeah so it's a movement called bird names for birds and um the priority is of course um you know birds that are named after uh people who are who were quite terrible and had some uh did some very terrible things which uh, unfortunately is a lot of the 18th century uh birding community yeah um but i would hope that they would eventually get around to the common nighthawk because it is not a nighttime animal and it's also not a hawk <laughs> yeah yeah so they're actually from the nightjar family and this family is characterized by large eyes the wide mouths that look like a puppet when they open their mouths i'm telling you please google what these birds look like you will not regret it um and they're also squat with brown speckled feathers so the common nighthawk is an insect-eating, ground-nesting, uh, migratory bird, and they are currently on the decline due to reasons such as habitat loss, climate change, flying insect declines, um, and human activity. So, a little bit more into that. They, when I say ground-nesting, um, they don't always make nests. Um, In fact, they will not make nests. They kind of just lay their eggs directly on either rock or soil. You know, that's a choice. (laughs) It's a choice. I guess, I I don't know these birds' lives. They probably have a reason to do this. So yeah, so they, because they lay their eggs directly on either rock or soil, they really need open grasslands in order to do this. And so 
you know, through human intervention, humans prevented all fires for a very long time, um, which allowed the grasslands to reforest. And then also just like human development has taken away from their habitat, you know, putting up buildings, roads, whatever, whatever have you. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons for their decline. Um, Climate change, you know, affects migratory patterns and increases extreme weather events. And then the flying insect declines, you know, cause for that is pesticides, once again, global warming, um, changes in agricultural practices that, you know, change what insects are around. And then, you know, the animal is also just vulnerable to dogs, house cats, foot traffic, things like that, you know? When you lay your egg directly on the soil, you're not necessarily protected. So yeah, this is a super interesting species. And in order to help with their conservation, some things are that Jasper is doing. All dogs must be on leash in the park, which... I am very pro. Your dog should always be on a leash if you're outside. Always. 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 Yeah. (laughs) I won't get on my soapbox right now. Unless you are in a dog park, your dog should be on a leash. Like an enclosed dog park, too, not like an open one. Exactly. It's just a field somewhere. It needs to have a fence and a gate, and the dogs can't open the gate. Yes. And also not be able to jump over the fence. That, too. Yes. Yeah, so all dogs must be on leash. There are signs put up to encourage park visitors to stay on the trails to prevent disturbing any ground-nesting birds. You know, Mm -hmm. as a friend group, uh, I think we can all say stay on the trails. That's very important to us. I have a little uh, story from my trip to Jasper about um, people who both did not stay on the trails and did not also take, like, appropriate action around wildlife. I would love to hear this story. Yeah, okay. I agree. This mm-hmm. is this is my bear's story, so this is for <gasps> bears. I can't believe bears has to miss the bear story. Shout out to bears. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to bears, but she'll hear it when she listens to the episode. Um, yeah. So we were driving uh, through a more, like, wooded area, and I saw a bunch of cars pulled over on the side of the road. Um, tried to figure out what it was. It turned out that there was a black bear. Oh. Like, maybe 10 feet from the road, walking on, like, the the brambles or whatever. And a bunch of tourists had gotten out of their cars and got within about four feet of this black bear. Oh, no. And nothing happened while we were there, thank goodness. But it was uh, eye-opening as to, like how much more education is needed on how to behave around wild animals, particularly ones that are dangerous. Yeah, general PSA, I feel like we're going to be saying this a lot. Don't approach wildlife. It's dangerous for you and the wildlife. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, because there were, you know, a bunch of tourists that were doing that. And then I was uh, also, in addition to my grandma, I was with my aunt and some cousins uh, who lived in Alberta, mm-hmm. and my aunt's house backed onto woods. Uh, so we, she's had, like, bears, cougars, moose, all sorts of things. And she wouldn't even let us open the windows in the car. Oh, wow. Whereas there were people who very clearly didn't know what they should be doing around wild animals that were just out, not just opening the windows, but out of their cars and approaching the bear. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. It was it was very stressful. <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. imagine. Um, but I didn't nothing happened when we were there and we didn't hear anything about anything bad happening after, so That's good at least. Yeah. Yeah. Be smart about interacting with wildlife. Yeah. No. Particularly bears. Yeah. Particularly ones that can hurt you. Yeah. yeah. If your only experience thus far with animals has been house pets. Know that that is not a um, a sample that represents the entire uh, population of animals on this planet. 
And in fact, it's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I'm just begging people to have an ounce of self-preservation instinct. Yeah, don't don't get out of your car if you see a bear. Unless it's bears. Our friend bears. Unless it's bears. <laughs> Unless it's our good friend bears. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just a quick couple extra things that you know, staff at Jasper National Park is doing to help the common nighthawk. They have prescribed fires to preserve grasslands as nesting and insect hunting spaces. And then they also just monitor the populations of this bird through audio recording stations and reports from park visitors of sightings. So, you know, if you go to Jasper National Park and you see a common nighthawk, you can be a part of citizen science. We are a big fan of citizen science here, so... Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Heck yeah. I just thought these critters were neat. I wanted to, you know, put a little bit of a spotlight on our good friends, the common nighthawk, and then also the... uh, Their names are longer. (laughs) The northern myotis bats and little brown myotis bats. So yeah, so... You know, I just want to say, I know things sound bad. They sound, you know, these are some species that are threatened and endangered, but steps are being taken to help to protect them. Um, And there are things that you can do as well. So, you know, if you're interested, check it out there. You can contribute in your own way. But yeah, and then Hawk has some very neat stuff uh to talk about with us if you want to take it away yeah perhaps our spookiest topic yeah in its own way it is pretty spooky (laughs) uh so one of the places that we stopped when we were driving through banff and jasper um was at the athabasca glacier so uh, the athabasca glacier is part of the columbia ice field which is um a big ice field system um, that feeds into a lot of like glacial rivers and glacial systems across the Rocky Mountains, which is um, actually one of the most popular glaciers visited globally by people because it's very easily accessible. You can just drive right up to it. In addition to that, it's also kind of a cool experience. They um, have specially made snow buses that can travel out onto the glacier itself. So you can go like kind of out onto the ice, um, which is significantly safer than if you were just to walk straight out onto it, which please, please don't do that. It's, it can be very dangerous. You don't know when there's going to be a hole or if something's going to collapse or anything like that. But the snow buses are actually like they're safer, but they can still be dangerous. Just in 2020, a bus flipped over and there were some deaths. Oh, yikes. Yeah. So it, it's still pretty dangerous, um, but it's a really wonderful experience to get to be so close to the glacier. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, though, it is disappearing very quickly. So it's shrinking five meters per year, estimated. Um, they are the the people who maintain the glacier, who um, like monitor, I guess, rather than maintain. Um, they stick these like five meter long stakes into the ground, like into the ice, mm-hmm. and by the end of the melting season, they're they're like loose on the ground because of how much has melted. Oh wow! Five meters is a lot. Five meters is a lot because one meter is a bit more than three feet, and that's five. Oh wow! So that's almost that's over fifteen feet a year. Yeah, and that's um vertical height of the glacier not um, oh wow not like a horizontal yeah that's like more than a story in a building yeah that's crazy in the last roughly 125 years it's lost 50 percent of its volume and it's um there's this really a great image that um i put in the file from the uh library and archives canada which is a government um organization they took two photos from the exact same coordinates of the glacier, about roughly a century apart. So it's one was in 1913 and one was in 2011. And 
the amount that the glacier has shrunk is almost incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. The main section where there was ice is now just like a ground basin with roads on it. Yeah, I, they don't even look like, I mean, you can tell from the profile of the mountain, but if the mountain was cropped out of the photos, like they would look like they were taken in completely different places. Yeah. Yeah, it's an alarming picture. We said this was our Halloween episode. This is... This is the spooky part. (laughs) (laughs) And um, one other thing that is particularly spooky is another image that I put in. As a way to educate people about the glacier, the um, the parks have put in these markers of, like, this is where the glacier reached in, like, 1912 or 1950. Mm -hmm. And so you get to walk through this area that's just filled with these markers of where it used to reach. And it kind of feels like you're walking through a graveyard. It's very eerie. Yeah, I can imagine. It's upsetting, but I think it's also a very good way to, like, physically come to terms with what's happening to this glacier. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really eerie to walk through this space where, like, 20... 40, 80 years ago, the glacier blocked off where you are currently walking or where the Mm -hmm. roads are currently going. Mm -hmm. And there's several factors for why this is happening. Um, Primarily, it's a result of climate change and pollution. Right. So glaciers kind of have like two main seasons each year. Um, There's the warm season, like the melting season in the spring and summer where um, temperatures go warmer and parts of the glacier melt and then there's the freezing season or the the reforming season which is you know fall and winter it's colder and as temperatures have been increasing overall the glacier melting seasons are getting longer and warmer so you're getting more melt and then the freezing seasons are also getting warmer and they're getting shorter, and there's less snowfall. So the ability for it to... It's, it's melting more, and then it's not freezing enough back. Yeah. And uh, that is a direct result of increased temperatures um, from climate change. And um, I'm pretty sure when I was doing research into this that Athabasca Glacier specifically is affected by debris and pollution from industry landing on the surface, which prevents the ice from reforming. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so for, for those of you not in Canada or unaware of features of Canada, Alberta is pretty significant for oil. Its um, main industry is oil, and it's the main uh, exporter of oil and processor of oil in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that produces a lot of um, byproducts that then can have really significant impacts on the ecosystem. Right. And this is one of the ways that the pollution from that processing lands on the surface and it changes the chemistry of the ice so that it can't reform. Oh. Right. Like, um, like I guess a comparison that you might have done in a school science classes like the difference between melting regular water ice and uh, ice with like salt mixed in yeah like salty water freezes at such a higher temperature so right yeah it makes sense that pollutants would also in a similar way change the the amount of ice that can freeze yeah and unfortunately for some glaciers this is not something that can be stopped particularly ones where the debris built up during the uh, Industrial Revolution. So if there was like a lot of like coal burning going into the air, then the debris landed on the glacial surface and it's kind of already started and, and it's hard to stop it once it started um, to have this melting. So unfortunately, it's actually theorized that the Athabasca Glacier will be disappearing Um Possibly within my lifetime, which is very scary. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and probably within the next generation's lifetime, if not within mine. Yeah, that's scary not just for, you know, losing this beautiful glacier, but also you said it feeds 
glacial lakes and rivers and such in the area and that'll have a wider impact on jasper's ecosystems and yeah how it how it functions yeah um so like the impacts of glacial melt there's kind of two sides to it there's the more local one Mm -hmm. where it will change waterways and lakes which in turn change habitats which in turn change biodiversity so if like for instance as we were talking about grasslands with uh, the nighthawks if the grasslands area gets flooded then they don't have anywhere to nest so that would then influence their population Mm -hmm. but it can also lead to flooding for human communities um, which is um, really dangerous as well and globally Mm -hmm. glacial melt can have some pretty significant impacts so Glaciers are really important globally for uh, biochemical cycling and storage, kind of in the way that um, like old growth forests are for maintaining like carbon deposits, kind of. And so it's if you lose that space where you had all of this storage and, and cycling happening, then that would have sort of a ripple effect on many different things globally. And it's um, estimated that about 30% of the uh, global water rise um, in oceans is a result of glacier melt. Oh, wow. So as the oceans are rising, like a significant part of that is that the glaciers are melting. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, because we're taking water that wasn't already in the water and putting it into the ocean. Yeah. It was on these big ice ice sheets yeah so it's it's very sad topic yeah but there are some things that i think it does really well particularly with the the markers that are kind of like gravestones it's a way to physically come to terms with climate change Mm -hmm. because you're you're walking where it was where it used to be right Um, and you Mm -hmm. see all of these spots of where it was before and you kind of can't ignore it then right. because it's physically happening around you, mm-hmm. which is, is pretty significant for Canada and for particularly for in Alberta because um, for those unaware, Alberta's main industry is oil and um, mm-hmm. it's also pretty conservative politically. Don't want to go too much into detail on that, but... yeah. Mm-hmm. As it has been compared to Texas in other mm. ways. Ugh. As someone living in Texas, I, I feel entitled to say, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that's pretty significant to have something that's such like a a way to experience education and a way to like physically interact with climate change. To have something like that in a place where... The main industry is not great for the climate and um, politically it's not prioritized as much. That's, I think, really significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. it's a wake up call. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And on that note, we've covered our topics for this episode. And thank you all for listening. Is there anything that y'all want to plug? Yeah, I want to once again shout out to whitenosesyndrome.org. You can check out the link, find out more about the disease, and what you can do to help. I just want to shout out to a a local to Jasper indigenous-led water protection group called Keepers of the Water. You can learn about them at keepersofthewater.ca. You know, if you're able, consider donating They do advocacy for the protection of the Athabasca River, which flows directly from the Athabasca Glacier and is um, currently having some impacts from the uh, nearby oil processing, which is then impacting a lot of the First Nations communities around there. And they do a lot of really good educational work and advocacy. So please check them out. Yeah, I have a couple of different things as well. So the first is the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada has a public Google Drive with some great educational resources on light pollution and abatement initiatives. 
Um, so this is what I was talking about earlier. You can find some of that information at rasc.ca slash IPA slash resources, and we'll have a link as well in our notes. I also wanted to say um, this is specifically for our American listeners, although the sentiment more broadly also applies regardless of where you live. U.S. midterm elections are coming up on November 8th, so that is very soon by the time this episode is out. If you live in the United States, you can go to vote.gov. That will give you information on how to register to vote. It will let you check whether or not your registration is current or active. Um, And it will help you find your local polling place. So I know midterm elections maybe don't feel as exciting as like presidential elections, but there are always a lot of very important initiatives on the ballot. This is also where we elect uh, members of Congress. So it's always very important to research what it is that's going to be appearing on your ballot. Uh, And it's also just generally important to vote not only in presidential elections, but also in midterm elections. Yeah. And if you were moved at all by the conversation about uh, the disappearance of the glacier, uh, please research and vote for candidates who are devoted to stopping climate change uh, or slowing its effects or reducing its effects. Because while Jasper is a Canadian park, the things we do in the U.S. affect worldwide and the things that are done worldwide affect us Mm -hmm. in turn because this is really a world issue that needs more focus for our own sake and for the sake of everyone in the world. Go vote. Yeah, Go, go vote. On a lighter note, we want to shout out a couple uh, nature events that are going on um, around the time that this episode is going out, some current events. It's probably as we put this out, it is Global Bat Week. You can learn more about that at batweek.org. Yeah, Global Bat Week is a week dedicated to bringing awareness to various bat species and, you know, issues that they face, such as white nose syndrome, and helping, I would say, destigmatize bats. I mean, a lot of people mm-hmm. find bats frightening. They've always been this, like, ooh, spooky, they suck your blood, like, scary sort of creature. They are a very misunderstood species. Um, So this is, you know, batweek.org. Check it out. Um, It helps combat that. So the dates for that is October 24th through 31st, Halloween. Um, And, you know, on the website, there's educational research sources. You can learn about the importance of bats to global ecosystems. They also have a bunch of fun things on there. You can check out the Bat Week cookbook which contains ingredients that are pollinated, protected, or have their seeds dispersed by bats. I'm doing that immediately as soon as we're done recording. I was taking a look at it. They they look great. <laughs> yeah, the recipes look real good, and I do suggest checking that out. And yeah, so during that week, you know, there's a mix of in-person and online educational events for all ages, so... Um, check it out. You know, you might find something you want to attend this week. Yeah. And in addition, um, Aotearoa New Zealand is hosting their uh, uh, annual Bird of the Year contest until the 30th. It's a contest to that they have every year. You can vote on their website, birdoftheyear.org.nz to increase awareness and protection for endangered native wildlife on the islands. And apparently last year's winner was, in fact, a bat. I remember this distinctly, and I was thrilled uh, that the bat won. (laughs) It was very fun to vote. There's some really good uh, images. And you get to, like, learn about the animals, too. um, Yeah. Because they have, Mm -hmm. like, more information about each of the species that are... um, possible 
contestants for the Bird of the Year contest. It might also be helpful to know, because I'm sure not everyone knows this, but Aotearoa is the Maori word for what we know in English to be New Zealand, which I believe there are also initiatives, if you live there, to rename the country. So look into voting on that also. And so our next episode will be in probably late November. We're planning on covering the petrified forest. I'm so excited. So if you if you want to get in touch with us about that, you can always email us at yellparkspod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Tumblr at yellparkspod. We want to acknowledge that Jasper National Park is on First Nations land that belongs to the Nakoda, Cree, Sequemic, Miti, and Daniza nations. Uh, you can find more information by visiting native-land.ca. And now our final Yahoo. Yahoo! I love that we've just committed to copyright infringement, not just of Yahoo.com, but also specifically Griffin McElroy's The Final Yahoo. (laughs) It is is so funny to me. (laughs) 